This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today on Dreamland, we have a guest who has become a good friend of this show and certainly of Whitley Strieber. Uh, Kathleen Marden is with us again and with something really profound and totally new, a book called Forbidden Knowledge. And Kathleen has gone on a personal journey. She's noted as a researcher, one of the great researchers of the abduction phenomenon. Uh, her uh, Betty and Barney Hill were relatives of hers when she was 13 years old. She overheard the first conversation they had with her mother about what had happened to them. So to find Kathleen going deep into her own life experience is a remarkable thing. And forbidden knowledge is, is just that. It is forbidden knowledge, a lot of it. Now, she re describes it as a personal journey from alien abduction to spiritual transformation, which is a place that a lot of us and a lot of you listeners and viewers are going. Uh, Kathleen, welcome back to Dreamland. Thanks. It's great to be with you again, Whitley. Well, thank you. I'm so glad. We have such a good time when we're together. I really enjoy it so much, and I know my listeners do, too. I do as well. Uh, now, the book, let's talk about the genesis of this book, because this is a real departure for you. You've always been a researcher, and your personal life has been in the background. But this has changed profoundly. What made you decide to get personal? Well, Whitley, I thought that I would take this story to my grave, but things have changed. Uh, their uh, officials from the federal government uh, have released information that UFOs are real. Um, and uh, certain individuals have stated that uh, it seems logical that we could assume that these extraterrestrials are uh, picking up humans the way that humans uh, pick up endangered species and uh, do tests on them and track them. And so that was encouraging to me as well. Also, uh, a few years ago, when I was on the stage with you, Whitley, as, uh, as a researcher at uh, Contact in the Desert, I started to think about the way that I was masquerading as just a researcher and not as an experiencer myself. And that was the first time that I made the decision to actually speak about myself being an experiencer of contact. Uh, I was I was tired of uh, being fraudulent about that part of my life. Right. Uh, myself. Also, uh, so many experiencers have said, well, you know, researchers can po never possibly understand what we're going through. And I just wanted them to know I understand. And this is what has happened to me. Also, an, uh, a secret experiment that I took part in that I came to believe is absolutely real. 
And so I wanted to share that. I thought that it was essential to do that at this point in time. Well, I was going to ask another question, but now that you've said the word secret experiments, I have to ask you what you are talking about there, because every single listener is going, what, what? <laughs> what, what are you talking about there? Well, what I'm talking about is in 2016, I was speaking at the MUFON's uh, International Symposium in uh, Orlando, Florida. And a man came to that conference. Uh, he hadn't intended to. He was told by his ETs to go to that conference and to seek out people who uh, he could talk to. And he happened to find two of my friends and fellow researchers. And then we all met a, a few times for lunch together and ended up coming back to my house to continue our conversation. And he started to channel for the first time information there. I didn't realize he was channeling, but Denise Stoner, who is a co-researcher with me that I've worked with for many years, realized that. And he started to send me uh, scientific information from uh, a gray scientist that he called Zark. And so... Uh, then he invited us to go to his house one weekend every month and to ask this council of eight ETs, allegedly, uh, whatever questions we wanted answers to. And so we, we decided that we would do that. I was very skeptical at the time. I was still too much into my left brain, you might say. Right. And uh, I didn't I didn't have a great deal of success until I was able to move over toward my right brain. Um, but I was able to connect with these ETs, as were the other people who were involved in this experiment. And uh, we were given evidence that they were real. Uh, we were able to measure an increase in the temperature in the part of the room that they were standing in, uh, more than five degrees for the fifth and sixth dimensionals, more than eight degrees for the ninth dimensionals who were there. And also we felt a, an incredibly strong tingling sensation through our bodies. And I felt that when I was on craft, yeah, that's yeah. that's an important factor. I I I would assume, and by the way, uh, she's talking about Kevin Briggs, folks. Uh, Kevin has been on the show, and Kevin also was the driver of the car that I was in at the Pine Ridge Lakota Sioux Reservation in the summer of 2019, I believe it was, uh, when I saw into the parallel universe for three days. It was Kevin. So Kevin has a a lot of juju, let me put it that way. And uh, and yet at the same time, whenever you're talking to or trying to get information from a, something like this, it's very difficult because the, I guess the circuits are not stable would be the best way to put it. So, but you, you got what looks like, sounds to me like a very clear contact with something that in my mind is very problematic and I'm not sure even exists, which Kevin calls the, the Council of Eight. 
Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, the Council of Eight are um, eight entities. They, uh, as I said, are fifth and most are fifth and sixth dimensional. Uh, there are two tall Nordic looking humans, uh, a tall white, a, uh, a blue avian, a tall gray, a gray about five feet tall, a mantis type that mates seven. And the eighth is a ninth dimensional. There's actually uh, two of them, the male and the female, but they they just say that uh, Shiva is uh, the right half of uh, the other ninth dimensional Ra. And don't think about the Egyptian sun god or the Indian Shiva god because they say that's that they're using those names, but they're not those entities. The ninth dimensionals uh, no longer have physical bodies. They did for many, many uh, incarnations, but they no longer need physical bodies. The others uh, vibrate at a higher frequency than us, and they say that's why we can only feel them, we can communicate telepathically, but we cannot... Uh, see them, and they say that when we're able to elevate to a high enough frequency, they will become visible to us, but they're outside our visual range now. And during this time, we learned uh, why they're here, uh, that they, they're they concerned about, uh, of course, as I've said many times before, our nuclear weapons and yes. our environment. And uh, really human behavior in general, that uh, they're attempting to uh, move us along on an evolutionary scale. They uh, are concerned that uh, we're in a position where uh, we're not going to make it. They say that a long time ago in our past, uh, we came to this point and we destroyed ourselves and they won't let it happen again. That's a very interesting point. They won't let it happen again. I have heard the same thing from them. I hope it's true, because I think there's a good chance we're going to do it again very soon, one way or another. I mean, we're at the, uh, as this is being recorded, we are at the edge of a possible nuclear conflict uh, over a meaningless war that that, uh, that the Russian uh, Vladimir Putin had no threat whatsoever from NATO, but he created the threat by by invading the Ukraine. He invented a threat. He made it, and and this is a sort of madness that grips human beings, and it worries me a lot. Now, and then at the same time, there's the environmental threat. Now, I want to backtrack, and I want to do something unusual, folks, because when I was doubting this council, I had immediately in my ear uh, a, a demand that I, quote, turn on the radios. Now, for those of you who don't know what the radios are, and Kathleen probably is among you, there are some radios that pick up an unknown signal. Uh, that were, This signal was, was discovered by a man named Jimmy Blanchett, a ham 
radio operator who basically saw a UFO and decided to try to get into touch with the UFO using his skill, which was ham radio. And they told him to listen on a frequency 144.1 megahertz because it was an empty frequency and they could communicate on it. And he did that and got, with mental effort, he got communication. Then when we brought the radios into this apartment, it turned out they were on all the time. The communication is on 24-7 here. So I don't know quite what, if anything, will happen or if that was just my imagination. But let's turn them on and see. We'll, ju we'll just see. Just a second. They are found deep in a dying jungle, six infants. They aren't apes. They aren't human either, not quite. So what are they? When they are spirited off to the United States, an incredible discovery is made. They are as smart as us, but not us, not human. The company that found them wants to buy and sell them as the most valuable animals on Earth, brilliant workers who need not be paid. Somebody has to stop this travesty, and that's where primatologist Beth Cook comes in. But can she stand up to the power and wealth that seeks to exploit them? Find out in Whitley Strieber's first standalone science fiction novel in seven years. New. Get it on Amazon as an ebook or paperback. As a subscriber of Dreamland for many years, it's been an incredible adventure and uh, truly a Rosetta Stone for so many of the experiences that all of, all of your listeners have had. Please join us. It's a fantastic ride. But I will say that, that certainly Dreamland does reflect something that I've always, always known, that man's mind mirrors a universe that mirrors man's mind. And no other place will you get this truth than on Dreamland. Come join us. Some of the most thrilling, mind-opening interviews ever recorded are in the Dreamland Archive. Open your mind to Sir Lawrence Gardner's brilliant vision of the past. Listen to Russell Targ's phenomenal insights about ESP. Be inspired by Dr. Eben Alexander's stunning near-death experience. Listen to an actual recording from a plane as it was attacked by a gigantic flying disc. Be transported to a new level of inner grace with Whitley Strieber's meditations. Enjoy The Communion, Transformation, Majestic, Secret School, and Superstorm audiobooks, and so much more. The UnknownCountry.com subscriber section. As little as 10 cents a day. Priceless. Okay, let's just turn them on and see what happens. Oh, wow. What you're seeing here is two different, uh, two different, they're not in sync, but they're radios. They should be in sync. I'm going to have to turn them off because I, I forgot to, uh, I forgot to, uh, charge one of them. It's going to go off in a second. But what you saw there, folks, was these two radios, which should be absolutely in sync. Because there should be, a, if it was a real radio signal, it would be hitting both of them precisely at the same time. That's the same reason if you tune to an FM station and you turn it on in one room and then in another radio in another room, you hear exactly the same FM station. But this is going to natter at us about, but here uh, you don't. You see it, you see two different signals 
in two identical radios side by side. Now, that doesn't happen all the time here. It's very unusual when it's as distinct as that. So to me, that's a communication. That is probably the most clear communication I can get. That, And I'm going to say this, that I think, therefore, that the radios are messaging to me that there is something to this Council of Eight, which I did not really believe before. So this is turning out to be a really fascinating show, Kathleen. Thank you. <laughs> Well, I think that's wonderful. I didn't believe it at first either. I mean, right. uh, taking the scientific approach, I uh, had to absolutely consider the possibility that Kevin might be delusional or that he might have been uh, a a man who was attempting to perpetrate a fraud uh, for money or fame or whatever he was trying to get from it. But in the end, we had enough evidence to uh, conclude that it is real. And they, I think, are with me all the time. Somebody is with me all the time. I now feel that electrical tingling sensation in my body uh, several times a day. Me too. I, yeah. Yeah, you are. Mm -hmm. I think we I think a lot of other experiences are in the same boat. It's coming mm -hmm. closer to us. It is. And particularly in my crown chakra, it's it's very prominent right now. I can feel it intensely. It seems that when I speak to individuals who are experiencers, and those people uh, speak something that is truth that we're not certain about, I'll get a very strong sensation in my crown chakra if it is true. Also, if people are talking to me wondering if they are really experiencers, I will receive whatever that signal is in my crown chakra. It's interesting because, you know, I receive it here, my third eye. Mm -hmm. Not not up here, and I'm receiving it now. In fact, oh, so, okay. So we're, you're, we're, we're, it looks like we're really in sync today. Can yes, you believe I'm... this? What a journey you've had. We're talking to Kathleen Martin. Her new book, Forbidden Knowledge: A Personal Journey from Alien Abduction to Spiritual Transformation. A remarkable journey it is, too. Uh, and I want to go back now and kind of, we sort of were not exactly sidetracked, but we were sort of moved forward in a certain sense. And But now that we've established some fairly interesting and amazing things, uh, let's, let's go back a, a little bit to... The Betty and Barney Hill story, because of course you were you you were a huge part of that story, and and it was a huge part of your life. And I want to work into it by asking you a couple of questions. So the first one is: uh, Was this in your family? This kind of thing in your family life before Betty and Barney had their experience? I mean, poltergeist activity, paranormal events, maybe UFO sightings, et cetera, and so forth. I'm not aware of paranormal pol or poltergeist activity in my home 
before Betty and Barney had their experience. Right. Uh, I've talked to my brothers about that, and they can't remember it occurring before th- that time either. Um, however, I do know that Dr. James Harder came and he was interested in determining whether or not this was intergenerational, multi-generational contact. And he worked with several members of the family and it might date back to my grandmother. Because it is multi-generational in most cases. I was just in, in at Rice University in Houston, reading through the communion letters, which are now archived there. And it was amazing to see how many people were saying, well, this started when I was a child or my mother or father or grandparents. So it's a, it's multi-generational in a sense. And you have to wonder why some people and not others. Do you have any theory about that? Or is it this some people notice and others don't? Well, I asked the ETs why they take people along generational lines, why they took me. And uh, what I was told is that it it is because uh, when they take people along genetic lines, they are able to uh, compare th- uh, that genetic line for any changes, any progress, uh, any success that they are having. So just as we, you know, work with, I, I don't want to compare it to lab rats, but if as we work with rats along generational lines, uh, attempting to bring about positive change in a certain way, that's the way that they have worked with us, uh, from what my understanding is. Why are they working with us? Because it's clear that the two messages of environmental danger and nuclear danger are, are so consistent across the experience that it means only one thing to me. They want us to survive. But why, Kathleen, do they want that? Because not all of this is sweetness and light, after all. That's true. You're Um, darn right it is. (laughs) And so uh, they, uh, we could be their experiment. Uh, They've said that they have been here for a very long time. The council says they planted our seed here. Uh, if you look at it from that perspective, they don't want to see their scientific experiment fail. Uh, they say that they have uh, come back from time to time throughout our history to uh, assist in our development. And uh, at this point, that it's critical that they assist in our development. I think they're attempting to move us ahead to... Um, uh, try to change us genetically and spiritually. The spiritual part of it is a huge part. Yeah, um, huge. Uh, they say that our technological progress is out of sync with our spiritual growth. And when this happens, uh, they have seen the disintegration of the species and of all life on that planet in the past. They don't but- want it to happen. Again. They they showed me that happen happening to someone, and it was truly horrendous. Hmm. It was exactly that. Their technological advances were extraordinary, but their spiritual lives were not. It had 
the planet had degenerated into two rival uh, dictatorships. This is why I'm so I so I hate dictatorships so much because I know where it leads. It always leads in the same place direction to death and massive amounts of it. Uh, and it's like Hitler, I mean, and Stalin or Mao. They the dictators kill and. In any case, this planet, I asked them for a planet that was to see a planet was a little worse off than ours, and it just blew up. They, they suddenly had a nuclear exchange that no one was expecting. And I went back to it a few years later. I mean, I'm not, not physically. I'm, I'm, I, I wish I could say that, but I wish, but it's not, would not be true. And I don't like, you know, I did not physically, but in my, in this, uh, and it was dead. The entire place was dead. There wasn't anything alive there anymore. And uh, if that's not a warning, I don't know what is. But let's let's now we're, we're ranging around because I find this conversation so exciting. Everything you say just takes me in a direction I didn't expect to go in because, folks. I, I guess my listeners probably know this. I'm highly organized. Uh, I read the books. And I therefore can have an absolutely in-depth interview. This is a serious podcast. It's very serious to me in any case. But so I want to try to re reconnect with my idea of how we would do this. And I want to do that by going back to a moment in 1968. Your boyfriend is, is in your family's home. He's sleeping in one of the bedrooms and... Uh, all seems to be perfectly quiet, but then what happens? <laughs> then we hear yelling and screaming coming from his room. It wakes up everyone in the house, and the coat hangers from the closet have lifted up and out, traveled across the room, and landed on top of him. <laughs> and so <laughs> what does he then do? He ran out of the house and he didn't want to go back in. Uh, finally, we coaxed him to uh, going back into the house for the night. We were going to take a fishing trip the following day on my uh, family's cabin cruiser in the ocean. And uh, so, but he would not enter that bedroom again. Now, had this been happening in the house a lot at that point, this sort of thing? It started to happen, I believe, in 2017. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I was 17 years old. Yeah, yeah. Was I was just going to say, that's right. Yeah. Sure. Um, in 1965 is when now, it started. Here's the, the interesting thing. the Betty and Barney's experience is when you're 13. Now you get a little older and this starts to happen. Do you have any sense of what it has to do with you? All I know is that when I was 13, I had my first out-of-body experience. Now, under hypnosis, I was uh, recalled that I had been taken earlier in my life. Um, it, there, it was very clear to me in hypnosis, but I had absolutely no conscious recall of that. So I sort of dismissed that because I want to have 
uh, a point where I actually had conscious continuous recall. And that's when I was 17. And my Aunt Betty was working with a team of scientists to attempt to call in a craft to land on my grandparents' farm. It did. It was observed by a commercial pilot returning home from work that night by my grandmother. And it left physical trace evidence on the ground that was investigated. What we never said is that my mother and I were taken together that night. We we found ourselves on that craft. And so that could possibly have been the first time, but I don't know what it was. Maybe that's when they decided to remain with us. Maybe that's the time that they used some kind of interdimensional technology and other things came through. Um, but whatever it was, uh, there was something there in my childhood home. Light orbs, um, poltergeist activity, also the feeling that something unseen was walking on the bed, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's half the listeners are saying, yeah, I, I know that feeling. I know that experience. I have it myself all the time. Uh, and uh, in fact, recently something uh, kind of growled underneath the bed. And the next thing I knew, steel strong arms had wrapped around my upper arms and I couldn't move my arms at all. And there was a time when I would have gone wild with fear from such an experience. But I didn't, what didn't concern me in the least. And I just waited. I knew it would end shortly and it did. And I think it was a kind of test to see where I was with, with my fear. We're talking to Kathleen Marden. Her new book is Forbidden Knowledge. And I want to ask you, before we go on, uh, uh, about Betty's idea that what she encountered were as she would put it, just people like us, but they look different. Can that really be true? Because of all of the strange things that happen to people after they have an encounter. In other words, you have a physical encounter. You did, I did, Betty and Barney did, a lot of listeners did. But then your whole life changes. It's not just that. It's not like an encounter with, say, a someone from down the street. Not at all. Why is that? That's true. Very true. And this also followed Betty and Barney home. Uh, this uh, paranormal activity began in their home. Uh, lights would turn off and on by themselves. They heard what sounded like someone walking around upstairs. Doors would open and close on their own the same kind of things that were occurring in my childhood home after that experience when I was 17. So uh, it seems to affect a vast majority of experiencers of contact. And we always wanted to look at it from a nuts and bolts perspective. Uh, I think when, when you actually admit that this has interdimensional properties, 
in a sense, you're opening a can of worms because then you bring in uh, religious uh, phenomena such as demons and angels and and that sort of thing. That's what most people, particularly in the mainstream, think of when you talk about interdimensional entities. But it's difficult to understand initially but you have to realize that they're only vibrating at a higher frequency than we are. None of us are completely solid. Yeah, it's not dimensions like we think of dimensions in physics. It's a different vibration, but it's essentially the same spectrum of reality that we are on, I think. And yet, you know, I've seen into another universe uh seen it and been physically in it a couple of times three times in my life or maybe it was two different universes i'm not sure so you know that isn't the truth really the bottom line is this is so complex and so rich that we just have to make some choices about how we're going to address it with our human minds how do you respond to that thought i agree and it took me many, many years to overcome my fear. But I decided one day that uh, I could live my life as a victim or I could become a survivor. And it's always best to become a survivor. Um, and so I made the determination that I was going to uh, move beyond this level of fear. I was going to find a way to communicate with these non-humans that inserted themselves into my life periodically throughout my lifetime. Uh, I was never terribly frightened when I arrived on the craft, but I was always terrified when they arrived in my environment. Yeah. And <laughs> you know, I think they suppress the fear on the craft somehow. They do. But I, I felt it big time, boy, when I was on it. I really felt it. But not you. Not me, no. And for many of us um, in the studies that I've worked on, they've said that when they were on the craft, they felt uh, that they were in a familiar environment and uh, that fearful part was gone. So what I did is I, I, I studied hypnosis and I began to work on myself to give myself a rapid induction, the words that I could say to myself in order to go into a deep trance when they were in my environment rather than going to the uh, fearful part, that uh, fight or flight part. And I finally was able to accomplish that and able to speak with them telepathically and to project love in their direction. And it was through this process that everything began to change. We have to ask you the question. And by the way, Kathleen's website, I haven't mentioned it enough or at all, actually, before now is Kathleen-Marden.com. We have to ask you, what are you driving at when you say that? What sort of change? Uh, I was treated like an equal. I was treated respectfully. Uh, they 
began to give me more information than they had in the past. Uh, they projected uh, feelings of love toward me that I had never felt on this planet, that it, it was so intense. Uh, they were raising my vibrational frequency. I think that they were doing that for a while before I accomplished what I was attempting to accomplish. Um, but the relationship became better. In fact, when they would put me back in my bed, there would be two on one side of me and one on the bed. And they would be very, very careful about tucking me in just so and um, just making sure that I was completely comfortable. So, I mean, it was almost like a loving touch that I was able to perceive from them. That's so interesting because it's quite an arc from the initial fear to a loving touch. But it's, you're not alone in that. Uh, you know, I had my first encounter experience was god awful. I mean, the, both of them in, in my adult life. But I gradually, it's changed. And now the relationship is, it's, it's so critical. It, it's, uh, to my life and, um, I, and it's fun. Also, it's fascinating. So this arc is terribly important because if we're going to make contact work for mankind, it's really up to us, up to the people who have had this, taken this journey to speak out and say, hey, there's a journey here worth taking. But what happens if this becomes general knowledge and people start to get have experiences like the one that sent your boy, boyfriend running out of the house and, or what happened to me and Anne, and, which was terrible too. Uh, what do we do? How do we approach a world that is struggling with this the same way cl most close encounter witnesses struggle with it when it first starts in their lives? Well, I think that a certain percentage of the population will be able to understand. And those are the people who are now going out and see five experiments, people who are doing group meditations and, and group prayer uh, to raise the Earth's collective consciousness is what I call it. Jung said collective unconscious, I think as I, I view it a different, little bit differently. Um, but uh, I think that those people uh, are going to understand it. Whereas if you get into those who are invested in hatred, in violence, uh, in, in harming other people uh, and feeling good about it, they're never going to understand this because they cannot identify with any of it, in my opinion. I wonder if we're not going to end up in a situation where they basically have to, I, in the sense that they are, they will resist and resist, but eventually if the survival of the species depends on this, and I think in some way it probably does, uh, won't they have to come around? 
And yet I think to myself, some of them are so lost, so lost. Is it possible that there are lost souls here that are already hopelessly lost, but still alive in bodies? Could it be that the journey is over for some of us? I don't know the answer to that question, Whitley. I'm just extraordinarily concerned about uh, the popularity of horror films, of video games uh, that involve killing others. Me too. Uh, That sort of thing uh, plays out as if it were real in that person's mind. And, And that is what I'm really driving at that is is fueling this other behavior. These people are going to believe if the ETs do come into our environment and we all become aware of their presence, they're going to perceive it as an invasion and they're going to want to fight against it. But these are the people who will believe that they are also demonic well, isn't the Air Force already trying to fight against them? You you must have some information about that. Well, the you know the Air Force seems to be taking the the approach that uh, these are negative. They you know they've they've studied uh, the negative end of it. Um, yes, I'm not aware that they have studied the highly positive end because when it comes to uh, protecting the the country when it comes to defense and and that's what they're interested in uh, they perceive these new entities as being uh, perhaps a threat to us uh, I don't know how they think that they could ever fight against their technology but they do view it as a threat I, I, just look at the the names of programs that have been run out of uh, the government, the uh, uh, threat identification program. So uh, I wish they wouldn't view it entirely as a threat. I do uh, have acquaintances who are in the military and uh, officers and uh who are not perceiving it that way. So I'm encouraged that there are some people who have a prominent voice who are viewing it uh, possibly not as uh, as something that's negative. Yet uh, they're so interested in the Skinwalker Ranch. And there are several places like this around the United States that I'm aware of. Yes. uh, there's both positive and negative. And I know that when uh, researchers went there, when military people went there, uh, government officials, uh, something would overcome them with a sense of terror. It, it was uh, projected toward them in a sense when there was no reason to be terrified. I know what that means. That means that lower vibrating entities are going to be able to attach to you because they've lowered your vibration. And these people took those entities home and they, they're calling it the hitchhiker effect. Uh, they're 
you know, it's happening to the family, it's spreading to the neighborhood, to their relatives, that sort of thing. And I, you know, it makes me wonder if part of what happened to my family was a hitchhiker effect. And maybe I have a positive hitchhiker that is with me all the time. I don't know the answer to to that, Whitley, but it's it's something that uh, occurs to me and and makes me wonder uh, if this is more intergenerational for more than the genetic end of it. But uh, the hitchhiker effect is there. Well, you know, I think that hitchhiker effect is is very important because you can actually. I think you can change hitchhikers by the way you live. And I say this because I realized about 10 years ago that my experience, that how reflective the experience is. In other words, if you're frightened, you're going to get a frightening experience. If you are angry or uh, are ashamed of yourself within yourself in some way, that's going to be driven home. But if you are working toward the good, no matter how messed up you are inside, things change. Is that your experience too? I think it is. It is, Whitley, absolutely. Uh, And in fact, I have uh, put a couple of articles on my website under um, the contact is something I wrote. I can't remember what it's called. But uh, if you if people go there and read them, it tells a person how to meditate, how to raise their level of consciousness, and how to protect themselves as well. I've done experiments with this. Uh, you know, we've we all know that if you expose uh, a house plant to love and take care of it and talk to it and play pleasurable music for it, it will thrive and develop. Whereas if you do the same, uh, if, if you take the same type of plant appearing the same in, in terms of growth and health and you expose it to hateful, hateful music, if you yell at it, if you tell you it that you hate it, it will die. Yes. I, I've experimented with all of this in my own environment. And I go out and uh, I, I have many, many little geckos running around my property. Uh, they're, they're good. They eat the bugs and I enjoy them. But they've always been fearful of me, wanting to run away. But I've discovered that if I project love toward them telepathically, they stop in their tracks, they look at me, and they push out their little ruby red throats at me. So I've made friends with them. And I've done this all around the neighborhood with the birds, with the cows <laughs> that are down the street. So they come and uh, when I walk by the pasture, show me their babies or just come to say hello. And there really is a, a, tra- a dramatic change. Uh, resulting from this type of behavior. It wasn't easy. No. I was committed to doing this day in and day out. Be sure and go to Kathleen-Marden.com and look at her ideas, especially on 
meditation. You can do hypnosis with Kathleen. Kathleen is engaged in, she's here. She is definitely here and, and she's here for you, bringing her amazing life experience to you to share the wisdom that she has gained uh, with you and the understanding. So you can engage with Kath Kathleen at any time. She's like most of the rest of us who were on this sort of experience or circuit and ended up on the public side of it. We don't stand on ceremony. We're not exclusive. Uh, you know, I answer your emails. Kathleen will too. We all are here for you. Now, let's go back to the idea of the collective consciousness because you have a marvelous part in the book about uh, the, the possibility of negative collective consciousness overwhelming positive collective consciousness. Can you tell a little bit about your concerns and your hopes in regard to collective consciousness? Yes, I, I think of the collective consciousness as the thoughts and the behaviors of everything on this planet. And uh, when we've had a lot of negativity in the collective consciousness through the news, through COVID, I, I wonder if diseases like COVID uh, actually develop as a result of this negative collective consciousness. And uh, so you know we're in we're in war and and bad things happen but if we can all work together and i was just talking about that when i talked about what i do around my neighborhood every day if you can project that love into the collective consciousness we know it's going to impact a plant i i really believe that if we all join together we could impact the population of this planet by just through positive thought and action. You know, I think we've been given this tool and shown that it works. And people always say, well, will the visitors come help us? The answer is, if we help ourselves, absolutely. If we do not help ourselves, then no. And they will sit, they will watch in anguish if we don't help ourselves. So maybe what we're needing to do here is to become a more of a collective of experiencers, not just uh, like the free group, which are, which are uh, basically uh, helping each other cope with and understand their experience, but to take it to another level and have all the experiencers start to band together to try to using prayer and meditation to influence the collective consciousness of this species. Because we know it can be, and not just this species. Look at the story of the geckos. It's about the consciousness, not just of mankind, but of the whole planet. Maybe we need to rejoin planet Earth. Maybe that's what this is about. We're divorced. We need to increase our level of spirituality. Yeah. We need to, we need to, to cure the divorce, basically. Yes. Our Absolutely. materialism has, has divorced us from our planet. We need to do something about that. 
All right. Uh, now I want to go on. We're, we've we've got a. I want to in the third half hour. I want to start uh, to talk about a little bit more deeply about the tremendous pressures on your family and how you overcame those and the hard life. I mean, you've had, you're like practically all of us witnesses. We all have hard lives. I was had, I had uh, John Martin on the show last week, I believe. And John is a, a close encounter witness from uh, Georgia who has UFOs show up every night. And he, and he has a low light special camera that he can film them. And uh, once he, when before he got the camera, they never showed up. But once he got the camera, they showed up all the time. And he's also, and you made a reference to music. He's also a classical guitarist, and he plays music for them. And you can see his folks you, you are probably already, I mean, my listeners already know about this now. And you can see him, uh, his YouTube channel has uh, these objects going past in all kinds of different directions. You hear him playing his guitar and saying, thank you, thank you. It's just such a gentle approach. And this from a man who has had a hard life, a hard life. Maybe we need to build a bridge inside ourselves from our hard and awful history into something new. I, how, I, I know you're responding to that. I can see it in your face. What are you thinking? I was just thinking about the parts of my life that were very difficult, um, very challenging, and that uh, how I've somehow moved beyond that I, I didn't let it hold me down. And, and I think that that plays an important part in who I am today. I, I don't think I would have been the person I am if everything had gone successfully as planned. Yeah, I think if, I think that's true of all of us. We friction, and my wife was a, a master of many things, and one of them we in the Gurdjieff work, which we were in, you learn about the use of friction in order to help you see inside yourself. And she was an expert at at this, and uh, she could she could enable a person to see deeply into themselves with just a couple of words. She was just extraordinary in that respect. And I got quite a few, more than a couple of those words over our lifetime together. Um, I want to talk just before we go uh, into the third half hour and we lose all of our free dreamlanders. I would like to talk a little bit about something that fascinated me. It's the story of Hannah. Uh, can you tell us about Hannah and what that is and what it became eventually? Uh, when this activity in my house began when I was 17, after the craft landed across the street, um, my, my mother had someone come to the house. She didn't connect this to the UFO. 
she connected it to ghost activity. So she started to look for skeletal remains on the property, that sort of thing. And, and then she had a paranormal investigator come into the house because there was, uh, she'd hear baby crying, for example. Um, and so this paranormal investigator told my mother that there was a little girl spirit in the home and that uh, her name was Hannah. And so this is where this came from. My mother went to a nearby cemetery. Supposedly Hannah had uh, been a very young girl riding a horse on the property, was thrown from the horse and was killed. And so uh, eventually my mother grew tired of Hannah. And by that time I was married and uh, living in Cincinnati with my husband, who was in graduate school at the University of Cincinnati. And we were home on a vacation. And my mother was saying, <laughs> oh, well, I'm just tired of having Hannah around. Uh, will you take her off my hands for me? And I had been educated, uh, you know, by psychology professors. Uh, and I had been indoctrinated into the idea that none of this was real. And, you know, since then I realized in, uh, from studies that have been done that psychologists are the, the most skeptical of all scientists. Yes, I have found that to be true, too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So um, I I thought that I was just uh, sort of appeasing my mother, but Hannah would not go with me. However, um, when we stopped for the night at a hotel near Buffalo, New York, uh, went in, uh, laid down on the bed, and the bed started jumping up and down. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's a great story. Very very weird and like the magic so fingers said, went wild remember those things where you put a quarter <laughs> in and the bed would shake but this you didn't oh, have no. that on that bed did you no there were no magic fingers yeah. there and and i i just said uh hannah we, we want to sleep and and it stopped so uh it it appears that hannah did uh accompany us home uh, into Cincinnati, and then things started to change in our lives. We'd been extraordinarily happy, uh, doing very well, uh, adjusting to life in Cincinnati. Uh, he was uh, a student uh, working toward a doctorate in the philosophy of psychiatry. I was teaching and going to graduate school. Uh, we we loved one another immensely. We were doing well. And then uh, we had planned a summer trip. And during that summer trip, uh, he had to have some teeth extracted. And when that happened, he met me. I was with another friend. We had set up. We were going on a camping trip. And he was a changed person, completely different than he had been. He was very frightened, uh, fear of death. Uh, he became delusional. Uh, he, uh, I ended up leaving him 
because of, of those radical changes. I didn't really understand at that time as a young woman uh, what was occurring. But so it, it blew up your life. It absolutely did. Hannah it blew up your life. Yes. Yes. Be careful what you wish for, I guess, is the moral of that story. How yeah. do you put your life? Well, you know, we've come to the end of the first hour, and we're going to leave our uh, free. I'm sorry. In the third half hour of the show, we're going to go a little bit more deeply into things like hybrids and uh, the mysterious Mrs. Swan, which is a fascinating story. And also, we're going to talk about what do we do with the negative side of this? In other words, Kathleen is here now. She's written a beautiful book called Forbidden Knowledge, which takes you through a very hard life journey. And you know what? Most life journeys are pretty hard. So it's a familiar journey to me, to most of you, I'm sure. But she's gained from it, gained wisdom. You can find out more about that. Those of you who listen on the free side, thank you so much, as always, for being with us on Dreamland. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.